following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. I'll say a couple things before I start this morning. Uh, what many of you, through this COVID surge, uh, one of the, I think, the pieces of wisdom that the Lord gave us was that we would always have a backup worship leader and always have a backup preacher. And um, at, for me, who a guy that very rarely gets sick, and if I do get sick, I snap out of it in about four days and I'm good to go, um, to not be able to do my job has been a really challenging thing. Um, our elders have a, a basic policy that they never want me out of the pulpit three weeks in a row. They only want it more, no more than two. And I've been out shockingly, not preaching since the last time we were at the baseball field, August the 29th, which has been that long. And the beauty of what's happened here that I want you to be freshly aware of has been the flexibility and the precision that our guys and those that did various roles did. We, we really have not missed a beat as a church. Matter of fact, I met some people last week, my first time back at church, who had been at church. Um, they came to church and they'd never met me. Um, and they'd never heard me preach. And so it was one of those weird, odd things. And what I thought was really cool was they were still coming, right? Um, now, after today, you may not keep coming if you're here. Uh, <clears throat> then you'll go, this is the guy we've been waiting on? Oh, my word. Um, so I just, we just want to say thank you. We, one of the things that we reviewed last week in our staff meeting was just, in our, in our review on Sunday, was just how flexible our church has been. It really is an evidence of God's grace among you. Um, the other thing I want to highlight those of you that have been with us since 2003 would know that when it comes to filling this pulpit and when it comes to preaching from this pulpit, that we demand that God's word and God's gospel is central. And what I can't tell you, I can't tell you the gratitude that I have that when I know these men fill the pulpit, they're giving you the goods. And so I just want to say, listen, we, we are a church that believes that God's word and the glory of Christ should be central to what we do on a Sunday morning. And when I say we didn't miss a beat, that's what I'm talking about. These, these guys did a fantastic job, and the people that covered for us did a great job. So we just want to say thank you. We, we can't say thank you enough. And thank you, church, for the receptivity that you have to God's word. Um, and so it's with that joy that I have that it's really good to be back in this home pulpit there's no place I'd rather preach than here. No place I'd rather serve than you. And nobody that is more dear to my heart and the faith, uh, my family obviously, and then this church. You are, you are on my heart and I care about you deeply. And what I'm about to do of opening God's word to you is the greatest joy of being a Christian pastor. So, so this morning it's good to be back. We're thankful. Thank you for your care for us as a, as a family. Um, I do want to give you just a brief encouragement um, and a brief word of maybe exhortation. At any time in your life, and you probably have all had this moment, where you sense that the Spirit of God is telling you to call somebody or shoot them a text or an email. You know those moments when you have them? Can I just encourage you to do it? And here's why. You know, I, I'm in COVID eight days. Um, it took me 11 days to finally start feeling like I was better. Um... On the eighth day, I, I was incredibly discouraged. I mean, I, I'm watching my wife. She went through it. She had about four days in, and she's up, moving around like normal. 
Um, Dave Rubel went through about the same time I did, and he's kind of starting to snap out of it. And I'm feeling like I'm 85 years old. I can't get out of this thing, right? I'm terribly discouraged. And I go to take a nap, which the naps in COVID, if you ever know, they only last about 40 minutes. They feel like they last five hours, and you wake up exhausted. I roll over to grab my phone, and I've got a text message from a dear member in our church. And she's a nurse. And she says these words. She said, listen, I know you're eight days in. The most challenging thing of COVID is discouragement. And I just want to say to you, I don't ever want to assume that because you're my pastor that you don't need a word of encouragement. And she sent me a little word of encouragement along with a little worship song. And it was exactly what I needed. So what I want to say to you is, chances are, the Lord this last week laid something on your heart to text somebody. And you said, nah, they're, they're a leader in the church. They're really strong in their faith or whatever. And you didn't. And I just want to say to you, coming from a pastor who's incredibly weak, all of us need it. We all need it. And if the Lord stirs it in you, do it. And you go, how do I know it's the Lord? Well, my question would be, would it glorify God and would it bless somebody else? If it answers those two things, then go do it. And then leave the results in the hands of God. Everybody understand? Okay, good. All right. Now, with that in mind, that's not even the sermon, right? I mean, you know, <clears throat> which tells you hopefully how good the sermon's going to be. I'm just kidding. All right. <clears throat> with that in mind, let's turn in our Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's stand together. We're going to read verses 12 through 19 together. <clears throat> I'll read it. You can follow along. It's going to come up on the screen for you. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that your word is true, that is inspired. It is God-breathed. It is good for us to read your word. And we thank you that you promise that when your word is preached and when it's delivered, that it will accomplish everything that you sent it out to do. And so, Father, this morning we ask you to bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. And Father, you know my weakness and my strength. You know the things that I'm battling right now. And I pray you'd give me everything I need to help to honor you and to glorify you and to bless and to serve your people for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as you can imagine, uh, my voice is a little bit weaker. Um, You'll hear a little bit of a dry hack. If it feels like it's coming on big, I'll shut my mic off. But it by God's grace, it didn't happen in the early service, uh, so I'd appreciate your prayer. So from, from this text today, if you're new with us, you should have an outline, and an outline will have a big idea at the top of it. Here's the big idea. 
If there is no resurrection of the dead, Christians have lost everything. And to see this, I want to look at three things in the text. This is in the outline that you're going to see. I want to look at a unique perspective that Christians have about the resurrection. Then I want to look at the consequences if there is no resurrection. So what, what does that, what would that look like? <clears throat> and then lastly, I want to challenge us about considering where our hope is found. If it's found in this life only or if it's in this life and the next. Now it's good of God, I think, to bring us to 1 Corinthians 15 at this time. You know, we've been studying the book of Corinthians for a little over a year and and we just now are getting back into it. Luis did a great job of kind of getting us into it last week. And it's good because in this time of our world, there is so much focus on this world that it's hard to get our eyes focused on this world and the next. It's good of God to do that to us. And so to start this morning, let's let's look at Christianity's unique perspective. As, you, as Luis showed us last week, the Corinthian church was a mess. We've seen this throughout our study of the Corinthian church. This first letter to the Corinthians reveals that. Paul wrote them <clears throat> about several concerns and questions that had been brought to him by trusted friends. And throughout this letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul has showed the Corinthian Christians how the power of God's grace and, and the power of the gospel affects the way they should see a lot of things. And, and some of those things are leadership or morality or immorality or gender roles in the church or personal convictions or personal freedoms. And then lastly, he showed us how the gospel affects our view and our understanding of spiritual gifts. Paul left nothing out that was brought to him and how he addressed it with the gospel of grace. And one of the major concerns is found in 1 Corinthians 15 which is what all of 1 Corinthians 15 deals with. And it's found very clearly in verse 12. You can see this in your Bibles that come up on the screen, that Paul said this, If Christ is being proclaimed as being raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? Now to understand what Paul is getting at, just look back in your Bibles to verse 1 of chapter 15. You're going to notice something that Paul clearly reminds them of. He reminds them of the gospel he preached to them and the fact that they believe this gospel. Now, the gospel that Paul writes about in chapter 15, verses 3 through 7 is Christ died for your sins. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again and he appeared to a bunch of witnesses. And Paul was one of those witnesses that Jesus appeared to. So you can imagine when Paul, the preacher, has said, listen, I brought this gospel to you. Jesus died, was buried, rose again from the dead, and now I hear that some of you don't believe that there's a resurrection of the dead. That'd be, that'd be similar to one of the most terrifying moments I can think of as a pastor. That I preach the gospel to you year after year after year after year after year. You're a member of our church. You are involved in a variety of service activities. You do a myriad of things. And then on the day of judgment, as a, as a metaphor, as a pastor, I am handing off God's people to God to say, Lord, we've been faithful to serve them. We've given them the gospel. Here's your people. And God goes through name after name after name. And there's a few of you that it sa he says, depart from me. I never even knew you. The shock of that moment 
That's what keeps me up at night, just being frank with you. That some of you would hear the gospel of grace year after year, week after week after week after week, and still deny the reality of the gospel of Christ. This is the shock going on in Pastor Paul right now. Wait a minute. I gave you the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus dying for our sins, being buried, and rising again from the dead three days later, and, and you believed it. And now you're telling me some of you don't believe it? Now, the reason for Paul's concern is because Christianity has a unique perspective on the resurrection. We must understand this. To be a Christian, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which we, 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 can, we, we uh, memorize, we believe, we talk about, we share with the gospel. Notice what it says. To be a Christian... We're to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, a Christian is someone who believes that Jesus died bodily on a cross, was buried bodily in a tomb, and was raised from the dead bodily or physically. Now, most religions of the world, especially Eastern religions, do not believe this. They believe in some sort of spiritual resurrection. We might even call it reincarnation. The idea would be the soul is raised up or transferred to a higher or lower place depending on how a person lived while they were on the earth. But Christianity has a completely different perspective than that. Resurrection involves soul and spirit and it involves the body. And this perspective is unique. And to be quite frank with you, it's one that's been mocked at and laughed at. And you, we, we think in the 21st century that the rise of opposition to Christianity is immense. It just feels like it's new. But let me show you something from the very first century that will help you understand. This is not new. This is what actually has happened throughout the years. It just happens to be new to us. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is having a debate in Athens. And he shares with them the history and the truth of the resurrection. And notice what it says. Some laughed, some mocked, but others said, we want to hear more about this. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is preaching the gospel to King Agrippa. And Paul is amazed that many of them thought it was impossible for God to raise the dead. So what's intriguing is, this was going on in the first century. This is not new. What you're going to find is that the doctrine of the resurrection is perhaps, according to St. Augustine, the most opposed doctrine of our faith. So in the Corinthian culture that Paul is writing to, this was the challenge. The Greeks and many of their philosophers of their day believed the soul and spirit were the highest level of life. And our bodies or physical things were in the lower levels and even potentially wicked or evil. Right? So, so to, this is why Paul would write in 1 Timothy that God gave us everything to enjoy. It's why he talks about eating and drinking and what we do with our bodies as being something that is holy and righteous before God. The Greeks would look at something totally different. Those things were evil and wicked. The soul or the spirit, which they considered one, were the, were the highest forms of life. So to them, an idea of a bodily resurrection was absolutely preposterous. Why would you resurrect something that was evil like a fleshly body? 
They believed the physical or bodily resurrection was a false hope and even potentially the greatest lie imaginable. So, when Paul challenged the Corinthian Christians on this, it's coming from a unique perspective that Christianity has about the resurrection. Christians believe in a physical, bodily resurrection. Matter of fact, it's one of our great hopes as we're going to talk about later. And so Paul's concern is this. Corinthian Christians, this is the gospel I preach to you. Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And the proof of his resurrection is that he appeared bodily to lots and lots and lots of people. I just want to pause for a moment and draw something out of this I think is incredibly important. You've heard it, I've heard it. That a Christian can believe something about Jesus, but they can pick and choose the things about Jesus that they think that they want to believe or not believe. Some believe they can remove key elements of the historical Christian faith and still be a Christian. There are, I I can't tell you the amount of books that are out there about this right now. That a Christian can believe that Jesus is Savior, but he's not really king. That you can believe that Jesus is a great teacher or a moral man, but he's not really the Messiah, and still be okay to go to eternal life. It's no different than what Thomas Jefferson did with his Bible, where he took the Gospels, and he just began to erase and take out of the Gospels the moments when there were miraculous supernatural acts of Jesus. Instead, what he did was he kept the teachings of Jesus and the compassionate acts of Jesus to say, these are the things that we should follow and mirror, but the miraculous stuff, that really did not happen. Many Christians believe that they can still be a Christian and live this way. Let's be straight about what the Bible says about being a Christian. Being a Christian means... That we believe in the most miraculous moments in the history of this world. It means that when the Bible says, and God spoke, and the worlds came into an existence, we believe that. It means that when, when Jesus, the God-man, was born to the Virgin Mary, we believe it. It means the miracles of Jesus, of healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, or on the boat that day when the storm popped up and Jesus got up and said, peace be still, and the storm was calm. It means we believe that. And it means his bodily resurrection from the dead, we believe. It means as well that his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, we believe. See, here's the truth. When we deny the reality of the resurrection, and we deny the reality of the supernatural moments in Scripture, we are literally denying the reality of the God of the resurrection. A.C. Thistleton wrote it like this. Resurrection depends not on your ability to imagine it, but on the capacity of the Creator God to design and to activate it. And Gordon Fee made it clear, to deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of the one who makes any and all resurrections possible. 
So friends, do you see what's at stake with the resurrection? Do you see what's at stake in 1 Corinthians 15? The very truth of God. And the very heart of Christianity. Christ was raised bodily from the dead. And as we're going to learn in the weeks to follow, those who follow Christ will also be raised bodily from the dead. It is unique to Christianity. And to pull that miracle out of Christianity is an attempt to remove the God of Christianity. And if that happens, we lose everything. Which is exactly where Paul takes us in verses 13 through 18. See, what Paul does now in verses 13 to 18, he makes a hypothetical argument to show how dangerous it is to take on the Corinthian viewpoint that Christ has not been raised from the dead. And that's our next point. Consequences if there is no resurrection. See, what Paul basically does here is he, he asks an obvious question. So, if you believe that there is no resurrection, what are the consequences of that? This is a great evangelistic tool, by the way. You get into a dialogue with somebody about faith in Jesus or about their own sin or about whatever the facts may be. Rather than turning them to media and say, no, you're wrong, that's dumb, you shouldn't think that way, begin to draw out where their belief will eventually lead them. And that's what Paul does here. He just draws this out. I do this periodically with Christians. They'll say, this sin isn't really that big of a deal. Uh, so let's just examine the sin of impatience for a moment. And let's see where impatience might lead you down the road in 20 years. What is the end result? And that's what Paul basically does. He wants to logically think it, <clears throat> think it out. Now there's something about 1 Corinthians 15 I want you to be very clear about. This is not a letter to non-Christians. This is a letter to the church. He is appealing to so-called Christians in the church who heard the gospel, said they believe the gospel, and now are being influenced by their upbringing, their culture, or whatever it is to think that the resurrection is a ridiculous idea. Listen, we all know, and if you have not been paying attention over the last 18 months, you should know how challenging it is to not be influenced by the world around you about what the facts about Jesus and what his word is or not. We've all been terrified to gather, yet the word of God commands us to gather. And when you don't gather, it's not good for your souls. And we don't know that until we're without it. And yet the world around us is telling us gathering is dangerous. What does God's word say about gathering? He says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, and he gives credence to that. The point I'm making to you is, do you see how easy it is to be influenced, especially by a world that's being bombarded by a pandemic? Now, overriding Paul's consequences in this is one main thought. If there's no bodily resurrection, here's the logical conclusion, then Jesus has not been raised from the dead. He states it twice as a point of emphasis, verse 13 and verse 16. Now just think this out with me for a moment and ask, why why would this be true? And why would that be concerning? Well, if there is no resurrection of the dead and Christ has not been raised from the dead, this means that Paul's words in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 
that the resurrection was like God's stamp of approval, that Jesus is the Son of God, and dying on the cross is the penalty for our sins, it means all of that is a lie. It means that God did not approve of Jesus. That Jesus was not declared to be the Son of God by raising Him from the dead. And if Jesus were not raised from the dead, then what Ephesians chapter 1 says about Him being raised from the dead and seated in power over all things is also not true. Now just think that one through in this chaotic world that you live in and one of the hopes that you cling to is there's a king who's overseeing all of it and he knows exactly what he's doing. Imagine that not being true because he's not been raised from the dead. It also means, as Hebrews 2 would say, that he did not defeat the devil who has the power of death and in turn did not free us from that same power. See, if the dead are not raised, logical conclusion is, then Christ has not been raised. And listen, as Christians, we would lose everything. But Paul doesn't stop there. For Paul... That was like a mic drop moment. You know, like, okay, we're done. We could say, okay, we're done. Conversation over. But Paul, that's not how Paul works. And if you know anything about Paul, Paul just keeps hammering the nail in further. And he goes further to say, listen, if the dead are not raised, that means Christ has not been raised. And it means our preaching and our faith are in vain. You can see this clearly in verse 14. And what this means is this. <clears throat> this gospel... Jesus living in our place, dying in our place, rising again from the third day is absolutely powerless and empty to help anyone. It would mean that this gospel that we demonstrate and declare, that we believe is the only power of God to save anybody is completely void of power. Rather than being a, a stick of dynamite, it's, it's not even a sparkler. Rather than the power of God, and to put this in every generational thinking, it's as useless as a five-year-old in the ring with Hulk Hogan or Conor McGregor, right? Everybody got those two metaphors? If you don't know who Hulk Hogan is, you're not old. If you don't know who Conor McGregor is, you're not young, okay? It's as useless as that. It's powerless, which means in turn, our faith in that gospel is useless, Rather than being saved by grace alone, by faith alone, our faith or our belief would be fruitless if there's no resurrection of the dead. Which would mean, as Paul goes on logically, if our preaching is in vain, then this means that we're misrepresenting God. He said this in verse 15. If indeed the dead are not raised, we are misrepresenting God. Now think about this just for a moment here. We're talking about, if the dead are not raised, the biggest farce in human history. Liars are not those who say, hey, by the way, I met somebody who was raised from the dead, and I just kind of want to lie about it, make a little joke about it. No, liars don't do that. Lunatics do. Crazy people do. This would mean the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, Augustine, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theologians in the history of the world are all madmen, lunatics, all purposely misrepresenting God 
if indeed the dead have not been raised. This would mean that you and I, claiming that we are Christians who believe in a bodily resurrection, are crazy people, misrepresenting God, worse than liars. The last consequence that Paul lists is in verse 17 and 18. He sums it up with this little phrase, our faith is futile. Following the same logic as verse 14, if the dead are not raised and Christ has not been raised, then our faith does us absolutely no good. And Paul uses two ways to show us this. Verse 17, he wrote, this means if the dead are not raised, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. See, so you can understand what this means. The gospel means this, that Jesus Christ died to satisfy the wrath of God in our place. But what makes that um, effective to us is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Meaning, if Jesus doesn't get raised from the dead, we have no guarantee that we will ever be made right with God. The resurrection of Jesus was like the seat, was like the, the seal or the final nail in the coffin of our condemnation and our guilt before God. The moment Jesus was raised from the dead, we were set free from the bondage of sin. You can say amen to that. It's okay. Thank you. Appreciate that, right? But without the resurrection, without Christ being raised, that can't be true. That means we'd still be in our sins. Think about that. We're still under the penalty of sin, the wrath of God. We're still under the power of sin, dominated by it, cannot do anything beyond sinning. We can believe in Jesus all we want, but without his resurrection, our faith is futile to deliver us from our sins. But according to verse 18, our faith is futile to save us from the wrath of God to come. Notice something Paul says in verse 18 that's fascinating. He says, then those who are asleep in Christ have also perished. Meaning, those who put their faith in Jesus and died, if if there's no resurrection from the dead, they have perished. Now the word perished here does not mean they went to the grave and they rotted. The word perished here means they were delivered over to the eternal judgment and wrath of Almighty God. telling us that without the resurrection from the dead, our faith would be empty and powerless to save us, not to mention the gospel that proclaims it. Now again, there's something I want to just draw out of this point to just capture it in our heart. Let's settle. As I mentioned earlier, we as Christians think we can take this pick-and-choose approach to what we believe or don't believe about Jesus. But friends, when it comes to closed-handed issues, issues that are clear in Scripture. Things like God being the creator of all things, the Bible being the inspired word of God, uh, the virgin birth, Jesus dying in our place to satisfy the wrath of God, Jesus rising from the dead to be the king and and, and rescue us from our, our condemnation, and Jesus ascending to heaven. When it comes to those things, listen, there are massive consequences from denying those clear issues of scripture what i want you to notice in the text notice how eternal it is paul goes you know our our faith is futile okay we're misrepresenting god that's here and then he says 
But outside of Christ, without the resurrection, you're all perishing. You can choose the pick and choose approach for your life. But I just want to say something to you. There are dangerous consequences to that. There are eternal consequences to that. And so listen, if you're in that boat and you're one of those people that are kind of wrestling through the truths of Scripture, the eternal truths of Scripture, then get with somebody and talk about them. Here's why. None of us are guaranteed the next moment. And we need to be thinking through these eternal truths because there are eternal consequences to denying the eternal truths of Scripture. It's obvious from this text In this section, Paul is saying to us something absolutely crazy. If there is no resurrection from the dead, we as Christians have lost everything. That's how important it is to us. That leads us to our last point, which is verse 19, where Paul basically summarizes our plight very, very clearly. If as Christians who believe in Christ... We have hope in this life only. We of all people are most to be pitied. That's our last point. It's, it's hope in this world only. I would probably not only put it as a sentence, I would probably put it as a question. See, Paul's logical argument really does end in verse 19. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, we as Christians have lost everything. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is futile. We're lunatics who are misrepresenting God, and we're still unreconciled to God, and we have no hope for eternal life. Which would mean, then, our belief on this earth, our self-discipline to get up in the morning, read our Bibles, pray, fast, share the gospel, give money to a church, our passion to serve our neighbors, our desire to honor God with our lives, our desire to, to deny ourselves earthly pleasures because we want to honor the Lord would be just as futile. Paul's point is, what's the point of doing any of that if the dead are not raised? If Christ has not been raised? And matter of fact, he goes on to say, it's quite pitiful actually. It's quite shameful to look at. Like, oh my word, what are these people doing? They've literally lost their minds. If there's no resurrection from the dead, Paul's point is, We as people are most to be looked upon as, you are absolutely crazy, and I'm even ashamed to talk to you. See, Paul, Paul goes on later in this chapter to say something fascinating. And you can see the flip side of it. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then we should simply eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Or to quote the great theologian Prince, we should party like it's 1999. Gives away my 80s versions. Paul's point is clear in this text. If there's no resurrection, our hope in Christ is in this world only. And the end result of that thinking should be to go live for ourselves, get all we can, and make sure there's nothing we keep ourselves from. But as we're going to see next week, verse 20 flips the script when Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised 
from the dead. And if that's true, which we believe it is, that means that we as Christians have hope in Christ in this life and we have hope in Christ in the next life. Which would also mean, rather than being people to be pitied or to live pitiful little earthly lifestyles, we of all people should be living like there's glory to come and should be the most joy-filled people on this particular earth. Why? Because we have hope in Christ now and we have hope in Christ later. I think I'm getting my voice back, so just bear with me, right? Okay? See, for those of us who believe in Jesus, since the resurrection is true, here's what it means. This world is the worst you will ever experience. Yesterday we were at home having a great day with our kids and everybody was there. Grant and Hannah got to hang out a little bit. <clears throat> and it was like heaven on earth. We laughed, told stories, you know, shared memes. Kids shared memes. I don't even know what those are. Um, <laughs> read funny videos, you know, showed me funny videos. And we just had a great time. And I was exhausted from doing chores that day. So I was heading off to my room. And as I went to my room, I just said, God, thank you that I'm not running from snipers. Thank you that I'm not curled up in my bed sick. Thank you for this moment. Let me just say something. That moment is the worst as a Christian I will ever experience. Do you see how good you have it? And it means in this world that is chaotic, it's sinful, it's Genesis 3 all over again, it's destined for eventual restoration, burning of fire, the whole deal to come. This whole world, it means that right now in this world, the resurrection of Christ tells you that you have practical, real help right now. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 8, that should just, after him at the resurrection, should just make our souls rise up when he says this, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us now. Which gives us, he gives us, true life, real life, abundant life, eternal life, now. So we have hope in Christ in this life, this world that is the worst we will ever experience because the spirit of the living God, the third person of the Trinity, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us right now. That means you have hope in Christ right now. That means the discouragement I felt on day eight, I don't have to stay there. I don't have the power to stay there. I have power to get out of it. It means the sin that's so easily entangling you. The spirit of God gives you power to overcome it now in Christ. But it also means that we have hope in the life to come. Over the next few weeks, we're going to learn this incredible truth. <clears throat> because Christ has been raised, so will we. Throughout Paul's writings, he says, the dead in Christ will rise because Christ has been raised before us as the first fruits or the first offering or the first one to do this. Therefore, we have hope in the life to come. So as Christians, 
What do we have to be fretful about or fearful of or anxious about or worried about? In this world, you have hope. And in the one to come, we have hope. But listen, there, you may be in the boat where you're saying, I, I don't believe in Christ. Or you may be claiming Christ, yet denying the reality of the resurrection. And I, I just want to say this to you, that, that that means this world is the best you'll ever experience. I mean, you, you might as well get all you can. <clears throat> but it is a hopeless and a worthless existence. It is, the, it is the best you will ever get. Now think about that. As crazy, as chaotic as this world is, this isn't the worst to come. And I don't mean in this world. I mean in the one to come. And if you're in that boat, listen, we, we would just encourage you, turn to Christ. Believe in Christ. Etern, eternal life is at stake. See, I personally think that this is one reason why we've watched what's going on in our world for the last 18 months. People have lived as if there's no hope beyond the grave because they don't think there is. So what have people done? They have clung to this world because this is all they have. Once it's ripped from them, they, they think they're They're gone. Therefore, they cling to it, try to protect themselves from death at all costs. My question to you as a Christian is, why? This world is not your home. And I'm not talking about being cavalier, being macho, being chaotic and weird and strange. I think that's done more danger to the gospel, in my opinion, in this time than many other things. I'm talking about being people that live with our face and our understanding toward we have hope here and later. And this has led me to ask a huge question. Listen, you get COVID for two weeks. All you sit around and do is think. This is one of many questions to come. It's a question I want to ask you. It hits something that's deep within our American souls. Are you living, are we living as people who have hope in this Christ, in this world only? Or are we living as those who have hope in Christ in this life and the next? So listen, I, I don't want to get into all the issues that there's fear on every side. And I could talk about all day long about fear on every side. And telling guys, that's unbiblical fear over here no matter how conservative you think you are. And that's unbiblical fear over here no matter how liberal you think you are. There's fear everywhere. My question is, why? When there's a government in this world that the kingdom of God will not be quenched, not be stopped, not be, not be thwarted. Because the kingdom of this world is being pushed forward by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. What do you have to be afraid of? What do you have to be afraid of when on the other side of life, this life, is the best you will ever experience? All of us who live in this nation are rich by comparison. You may think, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. But here's my question to us is, are, are you putting your hope in your riches, your possessions, your stuff? 
Are you trying to get all you can and protect all you can just like the rest of the world is right now? Or is your hope in Christ, in this life and the next? And you see your wealth, you see your health, you see your very life as a gift from God to be used for the glory of God and the good of other people. You want to see an example of that sometime, do some investigation on how the Christians live their life out in the bubonic plague. They didn't hide in their homes. They wouldn't care for people who were sick because that's what they did. All of us are staring death in the face. All of us. There's not one person in the room that's immune to it, from the youngest to the oldest. We're all facing it. Got a friend that years ago, middle age, middle, mid, mid 40s, drops dead of a blood clot to the heart. Perfectly healthy guy. Gone. You know, stories like this all over. The older I get, the more you hear them. But here's my question. Are you facing death the same way the rest of the world is facing death? With fear, with worry, worry that eternal life won't live up to the billing. You know, I mean, Starbucks had a cup years ago that said, heaven's got to pick it up. I mean, really, angel, you know, angels on a cloud playing a harp compared to Disneyland? And sadly, that's how most Christians think of it. And thinking that this world is all you have. And Christian, let me, let's, let me just drive this point home a little further. Are you living as if you have nothing more in this life and the next than a non-Christian? Are you just as fearful, just as discontent, just as possessive and idolatrous? Because here, here's, the, here's the challenge of this text. Since Christ has in fact been raised from the dead, it literally means we as Christians have everything. If the flip side is, if there's no resurrection, we lose everything. If indeed it's true that Christ has been raised, we have everything. Forgiveness of sin. We have reconciliation with God. A relationship with the God of the universe that you can talk to Him any moment and any part of the day. The Spirit of God residing in us. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And we have a guarantee of eternal life. Here's the question. Are you living like it? Are you glorying in that? Or are you living... As one most to be pitied. Are you ducking your head in shame as if none of these things are yours? We have clearly seen this morning that if there is no resurrection of the dead, we as Christians have lost everything. But since Christ has been raised, we have everything. Nothing has been lost. The challenge for us is to live like it by the power of God and by the grace of God. Let's pray. Now, as we pray this morning, I just want you to take a moment and ask the Lord, maybe where your hope has been in this life only. 
And listen, I don't want to target a lot of things. There could be a ton of things that we could hit on, but where you see fear, where you see anxiety and unbiblical worry, where you see unbiblical anger, these are indicators that we're putting hope in this life only. And just take a moment to repent and just ask God to forgive you and ask him to give you an eternal perspective on these things. Father, how we need it. We are weak. We are frail. <clears throat> we, Lord, we put our hope in, in riches or in health or in government or in uh, policies or whatever they may be. Yet, Lord, those things are to be used for the glory of God and the good of others because eternity matters. So this morning, would you, would you stir us? Would you help us to be people who live as if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.